Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. Ho, ho, ho. And we are coming back at you this week with episode number 54, the 2007 Carnation Murders. Yeah, this one will brighten your spirits. Yes, it's very timely. It is a Christmas. I was almost going to say miracle, but it's not. It's the, it's the opposite of a miracle. It's a, it's a horrible, heinous Christmas crime that we're going to tell you all about this week. But first off, Kevin's going to tell us about the meaning of Christmas because he is the expert. I am the authority <laughs> on all things Christmas. <laughs> if anyone knows me, you know this to be true. And so Christmas is a time to gather with friends and family to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Or before that, maybe it was a celebration of the winter solstice the end of the cold longest night, and the coming of warmer, brighter days. It's also a time we gather to eat, sing, and be merry, enjoying the time spent with loved ones, having life seem to keep us apart, tolling in our own separate hells trying to keep the bills paid. Mostly, the Christmas season is supposed to be a time of giving. Well, one resident and her boyfriend... Didn't get the memo. They gave the gift of death to three whole generations of the Anderson family in the quiet little town of Carnation, Washington. Carnation, Washington is a small town 25 miles east of Seattle, Washington's largest city. Duh. It's a picturesque town nestled between Cascade foothills and the Snoqualmie River. It looks like something out of a postcard. Just 2,100 people live there, mostly working... Oh. And the Snoqualmie River, I believe that is in the opening shots of Twin Peaks for the Twin Peaks fans out there. Never heard of it. <laughs> but just 2,100 people live there, and they mostly work on small farms that surround the town. It's one of those places where everyone knows each other. Violent crime is pretty much unheard of here, and that all changed on Christmas Eve 2007. And the close-knit community has never quite been the same again. 
So one question that you guys might have is, does crime actually increase near the holidays? And I'm here to sort of answer it. (laughs) So according to reports from the National Crime Victimization Survey, robbery and personal larceny increased by about 20% this month, which is December. DUIs, arson, and shoplifting also account for a lot of the crimes in December and January. However, more violent crimes like murder typically do not increase during this time, which I I think Thanksgiving was a big one. Yeah, I think Thanksgiving is a big one for like domestic abuse, but I don't think necessarily murder. So it's still like violent, but it's not straight up murder. I actually the crime rates actually go down, but I would violent crime rates go down. But I think crime rates in general go up during this time. It's too cold outside to kill someone. Probably. Yeah, I actually think the highest rates for murder are always in the summertime. Yeah, Yeah. I've heard that. Hot, nasty nights are bloody. Although this hasn't been extensively studied, experts guess that the reason behind this increase in crimes is related to desperation. Some people are looking for goods to give to family members or friends over the holiday season, while others may simply be facing more financial difficulty as the year comes to an end. Which is just so sad. You would hope that... If you couldn't afford, like, a gift for a family member, you would just tell the family member that you can't afford a gift. You know what I mean? Like, I know it's not about the the actual family member. It's about how you feel about yourself being able to give the gift or not. You know what I mean? It's just really sad that, like, that is the, the reason. Yeah, for sure. In addition, with more people out and about carrying expensive items around, obviously, right, especially in those bags that say, you know, Nordstrom, Saks Fifth, and all that stuff, the holidays are also the perfect time for opportunistic criminals to strike. Yep. Get your new pair of Nikes. Say nude? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So let's introduce the Anderson family, both the victims and the perpetrators of this heinous crime. The parents of the whole family were Judy Anderson, 61, and Wayne Anderson, 60. And they had been happily married for 31 years. Judy worked for the U.S. Postal Service while Wayne was an engineer for Boeing. Together they had three children, Mary, Scott, and Michelle. All of their kids were in their late 20s or early 30s. Scott was married to Erica, and together they had two children, Olivia, who was five, and Nathan, three. Michelle Anderson lived with her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, in a trailer rent-free on the 10-acre property owned by Judy and Wayne. Michelle graduated from Duval's Cedar Crest High School in 1997. Yearbooks showed her on the cross-country team and in the art club. She was described as an artistic sweet girl who hung out with, quote, unpopular kids. Some photos of her in high school make her look a bit like a gothy steampunk. And some accounts say that she dabbled in the occult, which we will talk about a little more later. According to an old friend, Jennifer Chandler, Michelle spoke of a volatile relationship with her parents. She claimed her father hit her and her mother was mean and didn't understand her. But Michelle spoke lovingly of her older brother, Scott. Quote, Scott was the only person she really trusted because they went through their abusive childhood together, Chandler said. Michelle's boyfriend was 29-year-old Joseph McEnroe, who was born in San Jose, California, and was diagnosed with serious blood disorder, according to his mom. She said she was protective of her son because of his health problems, which included chronic nosebleeds. This guy's just a dweeb from the start. 
Oh. Sorry, yeah, I mean, yeah, bud. but yeah. Instead of sports, she said, Joseph read a lot and played imaginative games. She said after his grades slipped in high school, he dropped out and worked at Burger King. So, like I said, total trench coat mafia weirdo in the making. I wonder if he had imaginative friends, too. <laughs> Those were his only friends. You just want to say imaginative better than me. Yeah, you cannot say that word. <laughs> <laughs> when Joseph was 18, the family moved to Burien, Washington for a time where he worked at Safeway. Then they moved to Arizona. And if that town sounds familiar, do you remember? we Burien? talked Burien. Mm-hmm. That was Mary Kay Luterno. Oh. That was the last time we mentioned Burien. I think that's where they ended up like living like pretty close to Seattle. In his early 20s, Joseph spent a lot of time online and played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, weird. For a time, his mother said, he went to South Carolina to visit a young woman he met online. He then met Michelle Anderson on a dating website and moved to Washington to be with her. He said he was planning on settling down with Michelle and having a baby within two years, his mother said. Michelle and Joseph lived in South King County, then moved to Fall City in 2004 and rented a mobile home there until 2006, I think, said the owner who asked not to be named. They came up clean on criminal background checks, the owner said. On their rental application, Michelle said she worked at an, as a night security guard at Nintendo, and Joseph worked at Target. Michelle and her brother Scott also apparently were trying to start an auto-painting business called Pure Evil Customs. Hell yeah. I mean, that area... It sounds like a place where you could start a business like that, which they found in 2002, according to public business records. Michelle also filled in as a postal carrier on her mother's carnation route, the Postal Service said. With all of that, the couple was able to pay their $390 a month rent on time. He was so quiet, the trailer park owner said. They were so quiet. It's the quiet ones that you got to look out for, right? That's what I hear. Eh, not always. In addition to arguments, Joseph drew the attention of neighbor Westberg. He would come and go all night, Westberg said. He'd leave and be back in 15 minutes. Other neighbors described the couple as misfits. They avoided eye contact. They rarely emerged from their house and were indifferent to friendly overtures, said Stephanie Ammons, a 15-year resident of Spring Glen. And the smallest trespasses, like a car parked in their spot or a neighbor's cat or young kids in the yard, would enrage them. It's so lame. Oogles, I think, is a good word for yeah. these people. Well, it's just like, what else? I mean, if that's what bothers you, what the fuck else do you have going on? You know what I mean? Like, when I started to get mad about, like, a parking spot in front of our house always being occupied, that's when I was like, I need to let it go. I need to, like, learn to do other things because that's a fucking public street. <laughs> yeah. So their neighbor just was saying how bizarre they are. Their next door neighbor, McGee, said Michelle would yell and scream, but then calm down and apologize. So these people sound fucked. <laughs> Sounds like it'd be fun to be uh, neighbors with these guys. So- Ammons said Michelle often referred to herself as the black sheep of her family. But McGee said Michelle's mother came about once a month bearing food and other items. Michelle often said her parents, quote, had a lot of money. Money was always brought up. It was always, we're really struggling, we're really poor. 
And as the relationship, McGee said Michelle was in charge. Quote, Joseph looked up to her and she answered questions for him. <laughs> so she was like speaking for him. And stuff. Oh, yeah. So Michelle's old friend, that. Jennifer Chandler, said that she tracked down Michelle online about two years ago. And Chandler and her husband went to visit the sparsely furnished Fall City mobile home. Chandler said the couple had black material over the windows, saying they were sure neighbors spied on them. They were saying their neighbors also tried to break in and were, quote, basically just out to get them. Yeah, that just sounds like pure paranoia. There. It's weird. They're there. like in their 20s. You know, at this point, they think they're probably like 27, 28. That's some weird paranoia, like older person shit like that they're already displaying, which is like being weird recluses with fabric over their windows thinking everyone's spying on them, you know? I wonder how fucked on speed these guys were. Well, I mean, it really doesn't say anything about drug use, it which doesn't. is surprising. Yeah. yeah. They're acting like it, but also like mental mm -hmm. illness for sure. So Chandler, Michelle's friend, was saying that Joseph was a little weird. He had a speech impediment, and he was always talking about his spirit guide telling him how to live his life. He said he planned to marry Michelle and change his last name because of a disagreement with his family. Chandler said she understood that Michelle had been diagnosed with severe anxiety and was supposed to take medication and see a counselor but couldn't afford it. During that one-night reunion, Michelle Anderson also said she didn't want to move back into her parents' property. And looking back, Chandler guessed that their troubled finances forced the move. I have no idea why she'd do that, Chandler said. Quote, because she knew it was a volatile situation. So let's go forward to Christmas Eve 2007 where the crime took place. And yes, Christmas Eve of all days. The family had planned a gathering at Wayne and Judy's house for Christmas Eve. And when we were listening to the True Crime Daily, like a 17-minute long video, it actually seemed that potentially this was potentially Michelle and Joseph weren't even invited to this gathering. But according to a lot of other sources, it seemed like maybe they were. So I could almost see why they were maybe upset if they weren't invited, maybe. But again... Upset is one thing. Murderous is another. <laughs> yeah. So regardless, they planned this gathering and the Anderson home was lit up and festive and cozy that afternoon. The Christmas tree lights were on and blinking and there was a roast cooking in the oven. Uh, Judy sat wrapping gifts in preparation for her grandchildren's arrival. Wayne sat on the couch watching TV. Then everything changed. The relaxed and joyous atmosphere of the Anderson home turned to complete chaos in just a matter of seconds. Unbeknownst to Wayne and Judy, their daughter was armed with a loaded 9mm pistol and Joseph was carrying a 357 Magnum when they entered their home. Joseph distracted Judy while Michelle shot at Wayne, her father. Michelle's gun jammed, so Joseph shot Wayne and then Judy, killing them both. So like when... The initial, when Michelle's gun jams, Wayne gets up and they kind of struggle over the gun. Like he like gets up, he's sitting down, I think. Who, strugg who struggles with who? The dad struggles oh. with Michelle. Because her gun jams and he's he like, gets up immediately. Oh, shit, to be aware of your yeah. child killing you. And then you? Joseph comes up and... And shoots him in the head. Yeah. And all the shots here that we're going to talk about, they're all like head shots. They're yeah. all shots to kill. Not to not to maim or like anything like that, but straight up to murder. 
Joseph and Michelle cleaned the room, which is just so creepy. So they like cleaned the room, got rid of like the blood stains, and then dragged their bodies out to the back shed to hide them. Right. So creepy. Yeah. And then they then they laid in wait for yeah. her uh brother, right? Yeah, her brother Scott and his wife Erica. And their kids. And their two children, exactly. So after about an hour, the rest of the family arrived, like we said. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so they began to get comfortable. And again, in that True Crime Daily thing that we watched, they said that they could tell, like, they weren't ambushed, like, right when they walked in. They had time to, like, sit down and get comfortable because I think Scott's shoes were, like, by the couch. Like, he had taken them off and gone and sat on the couch to relax. That's when Michelle and Joseph appeared and Michelle opened fire on Scott, shooting him a total of four times. Erica, with three bullets in her, jumped over the couch to get to the landline and actually called 911 around 5 p.m. She screamed on the phone, not the kids. But before authorities were able to find out what was going on, the phone went dead. Michelle then shot Erica two more times. When Michelle found she had run out of bullets, she ordered Joseph to shoot the kids who were screaming and clinging to Erica. And then in in his trial, he described himself as an attack dog for her, right? Yeah. So just like an attack dog, Joseph did exactly as Michelle instructed. With 14 bullets, Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe wiped out all six of Anderson's family members, three generations. In response to Erica's 911 call, Authorities were dispatched to the Anderson property. However, Michelle m- knew that most likely they would come because of Erica's call, so she locked the gate to the property. Seeing this obstacle, the police were like, oh, shit, we can't get through, I guess. Yeah. Like, like I, I can't imagine. It's like that. It's like a trailer park, basically. Seeing this obstacle, the police retreated, not realizing the extent of the carnage just beyond the locked gate. So they roll up to the gate for the property. It's locked. And they're like, well, see you later. Can't get in. I mean, and and like the 911 call is like fucking intense. Like it's not nothing. Yeah, it is pretty crazy sounding. Like, but you can't tell exactly, exactly what's going what's on. happening. Yeah. But still, it's concerning enough that you think that they would be like, mm, let's let's break this fence down. I mean, they've done worse. They've done worse for less. Yes. A lot less. So on December 26th. Postal workers. So two days after the murders. Yeah. Postal workers returned to work. And so when Linda Thiel reported to work that morning, she was surprised by the absence of her best friend, Judy Anderson. Thiel was convinced something was badly wrong. She left work and made her way to Judy's house, arriving shortly after 8 a.m. The gate was still locked, so Thiel got out of her car and walked around it, something the cops couldn't do. I know. It's not even like they had to hop over it. Because she described that she had to walk around it. Yeah. Fucking insane. And she goes to the front door. She knocks, but nobody answered. So she tried the door. Which was unlocked. Which was, uh, I guess, unlocked. Yeah. And upon pushing the door open wider, she saw the body of Scott Anderson lying motionless on the floor. At first, Theo thought he had carbon monoxide poisoning, but a closer look revealed he had been shot in the head. Not far from Scott lay the bodies of Erica and Nathan, who had similar injuries. Thiel did not have her cell phone, so she rushed into Judy and Wayne's bedroom and called 911 from their landline. So this is the 911 call. 
Hi, there's been a murder. I just came up. Judy works with me. <clears throat> Operator asked Linda who is there. There's a baby, a man, and a woman. She's my best friend. Mm. And when you hear the 911 calls. Yeah, it's so sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, She's my best up. friend. Thiel was too frightened to look at Erica's body and assumed it was Judy's. The phone call between Thiel and the operator lasted around 30 minutes. Ugh. Which is, yeah. It's so long. But again, it's a rural city where there's not high crime. So most likely it's going to be like most likely Seattle police or like maybe King County police. There's got to be sheriffs. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think it would still take time. It depends on how rural their property was. Remember, lots of farms. Yeah. Thiel told the operator that Judy and Wayne, uh, their daughter Michelle lived on the property in a mobile home, and Michelle had been upset with Judy and Wayne over money. Thiel worried that Michelle may have been involved in the killings. The gate is locked, which makes me wonder if her daughter did it, which is scary, because then I might be up here with a murderer, she said. Police arrived at 9.30 a.m. First, they found Scott, Erica, and Nathan, and on closer inspection, Olivia huddled behind her mother. She's, like, still clutching onto her. It was fucking shit. (laughs) All four had been shot in the head. They began combing the home for evidence. When an officer ventured outside uh, to the shed, the bodies of Judy and Wayne were also discovered. About three hours after the King County detectives were at the property in response to Thiel's 911 call, Joseph and Michelle drove up and were brought in for questioning. Yeah, they just like drove, like, like, oh, hey, what's, what's, what's going on? And like a lot of news accounts saying that they seem totally unfazed, like, like, Oh, why are there police here? Hmm. Like, you think you would just fucking, I don't know, after you murdered your entire family on Christmas Eve, you might try to flee? Maybe, yeah, maybe not go home. I guess they were like, let's just play dumb. Yeah. Which, I mean, didn't last very long. It didn't seem, yeah, they were, were playing it too close to the <laughs> So Michelle told police that they had been on their way to Las Vegas to get married, but when they got lost, they turned around and came home. That just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. We got you, like four blocks away, and then we're like, where the fuck is Las Vegas? So we just came back. <laughs> you take I-5 South for a long time. Yeah. Michelle told the detectives that the last time she had seen her parents was Christmas Eve before heading to Las Vegas. When a detective asked her why she thought the authorities were at her parents' house, she broke down. (laughs) That didn't... Were they like, here's a feather, let me push you with it. Yeah. And there you go. Hardened criminals. But... I... I... She's obviously a humongous piece of shit. But it is... It's almost sad, like, immediately her response was, it's not Joe's fault, it's all my fault, Michelle exclaimed. As soon as I shot the gun, I felt so bad. Like, what the hell have I done? I'm a monster. Like, I'm not saying she deserves any sympathy whatsoever, but she does seem, like, right away regretful and, like, remorseful of her crimes. It's, like, accounts of people that have, like, jumped off buildings and stuff trying to kill themselves and have lived to tell. They always say as soon as they jump, they regret it immediately. Yeah. So it's like one of those things. Like, Don't you wish she would have jumped off a building rather than killed her entire family? And that's what we always say of the, these people that go on these like mass killings is like, <sighs> hey, you're disgruntled about your life and you think everything sucks. Kill yourself then. Don't fucking kill your family. Don't go into a fucking random ass like shopping center and ki- shoot up a bunch of people. Like, like deal with the problem internally, you know? Yeah. Do the world I, I mean, a favor. 
I mean, obviously don't kill anyone, including yourself. But like, obviously she didn't feel like she could seek help because of whether it was finances or what. But God, killing your whole extensive family is especially like two tiny children. Not the solution, right? I mean, yeah. is it just me or is that not a solution? No, if you are having thoughts of going out and killing random people, yeah, just call kill yourself. Start with yourself. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, call someone first. But yeah, if you feel the need to kill, maybe try yourself first. That is not. Try it Wait. on yourself. Just like the vaccines, all the doctors should do it themselves. Kevin, well, they are. Okay. Great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The de- okay, that was a weird tangent. The detective asked Michelle why she didn't spare the children, and Michelle explained, oh, I fucking hate this. This is what family annihilators always fucking say. The fucking bullshit excuse of like, oh, I didn't want them to be scarred for life having seen like their parents get killed or whatever. That's so often, like, hey, guess what? Why don't you let them fucking decide for themselves, you fuckhead? The three-year-old probably wouldn't even remember, or the three-year-old would turn out like Dexter, and only kill bad people. Because <laughs> that was his thing, is that he watched his mom die in, like, a bloodbath. And that was why he had this murderous rage. But he was, like, two or three. Yeah. Well, yeah. see, if he would have just started with himself, then everyone would be fine. Yeah. Anderson was questioned as to why she felt the need to wipe out her entire family. She told detectives that she was tired of everybody stepping on her, claiming that her brother, Scott, owed her $40,000, I'm assuming from starting that business, right, and would not pay her back, and that her parents had begun pressing her about paying rent money for living in the mobile home on their property, after which she and Joseph had been living there a year free of charge. That was a weird sentence. (laughs) It became clear to detectives that money was at the heart of the terrible murders. When questioned about how long she had been planning the murders, Michelle said that she had decided two weeks ago. And see, this is where, like, having an attorney would be like, shut the fuck up. Because now you're talking premeditation, right? She had been thinking about doing this for two weeks, she said, and asked that Joseph help her. I wanted my mom, brother, and dad to die because they abused me over the years, she reportedly told police. I wasted my life because of these assholes. It's not fair. How did she waste her life? I don't know. I think mm. sounds like it's all her fault. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you guys can see, like, they only were living on the property for, like, a year, which means that, like, she was living her own life for almost a decade before she came back to live with her parents. So any kind of shittiness about her life was self-created. So <clears throat> they couldn't afford, like, the $370 rent that they had at their place before they moved back to their to the Anderson They just want to be fucking freeloaders. I mean... Yeah, these guys are fucking losers. Yeah, exactly. Fuck you, losers. That's for all the losers out there. After their confessions, which went on for nearly two hours and detailed who killed who exactly, and that's why we know so much information, because they fucking gave themselves up pretty easily, they were arrested on the spot. No surprise there. Michelle led detectives to where she and Joseph discarded the two guns... In the Stillaguamish River. I think I did okay there. That sounded very... I know. I said it really confidently. Yeah. I mean, it looks Stillaguamish, right? Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I'm sold. On December 28th, 2007, two days after the bodies of the Anderson family were found on their property, 
Michelle and Joseph were each charged with six counts of aggravated murder. That same day, Joseph, during a jailhouse interview with the Seattle Times, says of the victims, I'm sorry that they're gone. They were my family too, you know. No, they weren't. Fuck off. He does not discuss, he didn't say that part, but he does not discuss the slayings after that. They're my family too, you know. They weren't, I mean, whatever, but fuck you. What a cunt. 2008, June 27th, in the jailhouse interview, Michelle Anderson tells the Times she committed the murders and wants to die. Quote. Which, it should fucking end right there. Kill her. Yeah. And as we see, it's not that fucking simple. I mean, I... I'm somewhat glad it's not that simple, but in this case, I'm pissed that it's not that simple. It should have been more simple. Yes. It should have been like, okay, here's a gun to the head. Yeah. Here's a pack of dogs. (laughs) That sounds like a gift. (laughs) I don't want to give her a gift. What if it was just a pack of creatures? Okay. Well, that would be, that would be bad. Annoying, annoying, being annoyed to death. That's the (laughs) bad way to die. So Michelle was telling the interviewee, quote, I want the most severe punishment, which would be the death penalty. And she also said, I think if I kill a bunch of people, I'm not sure I deserve to live. I want to waive my trial. Which they should have fucking granted. I mean. They should have had a guy behind the interviewer with a gun and just blow her head off (laughs) right there. Christ. October 16th, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg announces he will seek the death penalty against Joseph and Michelle. Three years later. Yes. So, so almost three years later, yeah. So yeah, April that. 28th, 2011. So this is four years after the murder. Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Ramsdale rules Michelle and Joseph will re- will receive separate trials. So just to like point out, they've been in custody this entire time. It's been over four years since the murder. They've both confessed to the killings. Their fingerprints are everywhere. They obviously did it. They had motive and opportunity. They showed them where the guns were. Why the fuck? I mean, I get trials and like all of that shit, but they have straight up said, give us the death penalty. Yeah. I did She's it. She's like saying, kill me, please. And it's crazy because it's, I wish, I wish she would have just killed herself at this point because that's four years and I'm not gonna like, I don't, I don't believe this in all circumstances, just this one. But it's like, that's a fucking waste of taxpayer dollars. Like, this whole debacle is fucking... Because you know for a fact she's not paying for her own lawyer lawyer, and that they're living, you know, off of the... You know, I feel a little bit of sympathy for Joseph, the tiniest, tiniest bit of sympathy for him because he was a fucking tool. But, like, I can't believe that it's gone on this long. It took them four years to basically say, okay, you can get y'all's own trials. Like, that's fucking ridiculous. This is an infuriating case in that regard, how slow it goes. Yeah, government's working. So July 11th, Senior Deputy Prosecutor James Conat, who was criticized by the state Supreme Court for using racially charged language during a 2007 trial, is removed as prosecutor on the two cases. In 2013, Judge Ramsdale rules the state cannot seek the death penalty against Michelle and Joseph, saying the King County Prosecutor's Office erred in considering the strength of its evidence in deciding to seek the death penalty. That doesn't make any sense to me, but whatever. September 5th, the state Supreme Court overturns Ramsdale's ruling on the death penalty and orders the Joseph and Michelle's trials to proceed. Again, this is what, fucking six years after the crimes? Yeah. This is infuriating. 
Yeah, it seems like these people are just trying to make their themselves relevant in these court houses. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Wasting everyone's fucking money and time is what they're doing. January of 2014, Ramsdale rules if the state fails to amend the charges to allege that there is insufficient mitigating circumstances to merit leniency. I gave you like the hardest sentence in the whole thing. <laughs> uh, life in prison instead of the death penalty. He would entertain a motion from Joseph to plead guilty without facing the death penalty. Uh, they could have done this years, years ago. Yeah. So... February 11th, Governor Jay Inslee announces no one will be executed while he's in office. Not on my watch. However, he does not commute the sentences of inmates on death row. Future governors can reinstate the death penalty in those cases. What a fucking spineless twat. I know. So, on July 11th, the state Supreme Court reverses Ramsdell's ruling requiring prosecutors to amend charging documents against Michelle and Joseph. The justices also deny a request from the state to replace Ramsdell with another judge. On March 25, 2015, almost eight years from the time of the murders, jurors find Joseph guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. No fucking shit. Wait, what? They're, they found him guilty? How? Cause he pulled, cause he fucking confessed, and his fingerprints are all over the gun. Ah! Two months later, he is sentenced to life in prison. No fucking shit. That could have been done seven and a half years pr like prior. It's so annoying. I'm really glad they were able to crack this case. And then on July 29th, Satterberg announces that he is no longer seeking the death penalty against Michelle Anderson. <sighs> Finally, in March of 2016. A year after Joseph's trial, Michelle is convicted of six counts of aggravated murder. Oh, what fucking whoop, right? Duh. <laughs> and then on April 21st, she was sentenced to life for killing six relatives incarnation. Again, no shit. Could have been done eight years prior. Nine years prior at this point. So to take a lesson from the true crime dumpster this holiday season, don't kill your family. <laughs> Just let it go. Find things that bring you happiness. And if you can't, then just don't leave your shitty trailer. Kevin, do you have anything? Yeah, well, regarding this case. <sighs> I mean, the, the, the most, the thing for me that's infuriating, one, is that she kills her entire family and not herself. Like, yeah. fucking sh uh, waste of human space. But two, the the dragging the, the feet of the justice system that happens in this story is infuriating because it's one of it's like in Washington's history is like one of the most expensive trials ever. And this is with confessions and like begging them like 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 he said, I should be behind bars forever. He said that. And then she says, kill me. Yeah. Why are you going to spend millions on these two people who repeatedly have pled guilty basically like, I don't understand why there was even a trial. Is it just to set, like, a legal precedent or something? Like, I don't understand. I, 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 I appreciate the chance at a fair trial in the United States, but I don't think that this one really warranted that because they both were, like, admitting fault. Right. That's I hate this case for that reason. <sighs> yeah, 
it's just uh, another example of failed government. How much do you think Christmas played into it? To their actual... Just to, like, their mindset or maybe, like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... I just hate how they, like, Michelle's the victim, you know? Like... They did it to me. They just didn't know me and, you know, fucking just hassled me about money all the time. I will say, at least with Joseph, he admits that he's, like, a pussy-ass bitch. (laughs) I've never said that before in my life, but at least she admits it. I don't think she really does. It's always someone else's fault. Yeah. With her, she plays the victim card. Like, um, I felt forced to do it. I was always the black sheep, blah, 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 blah. But with him, like, again, there's no amount of sympathy I have for him. But I think that when he described himself as like the attack dog of Michelle's, I think that he was correct. It doesn't absolve him of any like you know, charges or anything like that. But at least he fucking admits that he's a fucking loser, you know? Michelle, like, will go down in history as some indignant loser. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that is why, Joseph and Michelle, you are both human pieces of garbage. And we're going to take you out to the dump (laughs) this holiday season. Okay, well, there you go. Along with all of our other garbage-ass people of 2020. Amy's cleaning up this I town. hope you both die of... <laughs> reindeer rape. What? Rain? Oh, reindeer. <laughs> Welcome to the holiday <laughs> those season, like, Amy. Those are Christmas deer. <laughs> yeah, they are. Those so, are my thoughts. <laughs> so we wish you a happy holiday. <laughs> <laughs> From the True Crime Dumpster. And we're going to take a week off. We've decided because next Thursday, which we're really trying to get back to Thursdays, it's hard. I'm pregnant and Kevin works all the time. Yeah. So we'll get caught up over the next week because next Thursday is actually Christmas Eve. I hope that there's no reenactment of anything. So that's why we're going to take off the week. (laughs) That's a terrible joke. I don't know where Amy's going with all this. So uh, we'll be back in a few weeks with a whole new tale of human garbage to tell you about. So until then. Until then, if I'm still around, maybe Amy's got plans for me. <laughs> you're my attack dog. Oh, yeah. I'm sick myself. My, you're my fifth attack dog. <laughs> oh. uh, so if I'm still around, you can join our True Crime Dumpster Facebook group. Or even group. if he's not, I mean, you can still join I guess I, I don't do, need to I be do here for this. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter. <clears throat> you can follow Amy on Twitter. <laughs> At TC Dumpster and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email her at <laughs> True Crime Dumpster at gmail.com. You can also check out her website at TrueCrimeDumpster.com. Listen to her show on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and many other platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about her podcast. It's fucking awesome. Every review rating and referral helps her to get a larger audience. (laughs) Tune in next time as she continues talking out the trash. Bye forever. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Vestibus. Happy Vestibus.